Awesome. Kia ora. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you here. And uh, for those of you who are planning on coming to the 9 a.m. service but showed up anyway for the 1045, welcome to you as well. You made it, and that's the important thing. There's no judgment here. So good on you guys. Uh, wasn't that awesome? Sam, that was so, so good. So wonderful to hear. And if I'm honest, it would have been hard. It's hard to do a better introduction in what we're looking at today than what Sam just shared, that both the good and the hard times come from God, even if we don't always like it or like to talk about it very much. And that's what we're looking at today, particularly the hard times and uh, our responses to them. Now, I'm a pastor here at this church, and so I I like to fancy myself an emotionally mature person, someone who can, like, you know, relate to people, and if someone's going through grief or loss or, you know, like, embarrassing joy, you know, like all those emotions that we like to pretend that we don't have sometimes. I feel like, I felt like I was a mature person who'd be able to handle those responsibly until I had a child. Um, I've got a 10-month-old little boy, and, you know, I remember hearing the parenting advice, like, when you have a kid, they're going to cry, and it's okay, you don't need to fix it. And you can hear that, but, and I'd heard that, but once my kid started crying, I was like, I need to fix this. You need to stop. What do I need to do? So I'd, you know, Leo would cry and I'd go to Haley like, is he hungry? Is he tired? Is he thirsty? Is he hungry and thirsty? Are those the same things? Do I need to differentiate those? Do I need to get food? No, he's too young for food. Um, Do I need to change him? Do I need to put his head this way? Do I need to put his head this way? Do I need to put his feet this far from the side of the cot? You know, I felt, I felt compelled and he would cry and he would cry and I'd feel like that I needed to do more and I needed to do more and I needed to do more because to be honest, his tears made me feel um, unsettled, you know? But, and once I saw this with Leo, I, I realized that actually I'm probably not as good with, you know, some of those uncomfortable emotions as I thought I was. Like, anyone, anyone ever been guilty of the, or get stuck in the situation where you ask someone how they're doing and they actually tell you? <laughs> That's an awkward moment. Hey, how you doing? Really bad. Oh. I'm going to find a way to lead this conversation quietly, you know, like, it's, it's an awkward thing. One of the most awkward moments when I was living in the UK was you'd have this culture clash between Americans and Brits. And, you know, Brits, one of the ways they'd greet each other would be like, you're right, you're right. You know, and these Americans would come over and these British people would be asking them if they're all right. And these Americans would be like, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, you know, I've been missing my family. Um, you know, it's hard to get used to a new culture. And you can see this British person be like, I don't, why are you doing this? <laughs> You need, to, you need to stop. You need to, you need to stop what you're doing. Because to be honest, um, grief, sorrow, um, sadness, loneliness, when we have to interact with that, it's really uncomfortable sometimes, eh? It's uncomfortable when you have to deal with it in someone else, and it's, it's really uncomfortable when you're the person dealing with it. Normally, um, if you're anything like me, when you're going through difficulty and pain, um, my favorite mechanism is just to put a smile on my face and hope no one will ever notice. Because to be honest, grief often feels really inappropriate if it comes out. So we need to hide it and put it away and condense it into a nice little safe box that we never have to deal with if we're lucky. But today, as we continue our series in David and we look at the continuations of David's life, I wonder if we might be able to glean a little bit from his response and the settings that he faced and help us to understand that grief and pain and voicing that through lament and mourning really isn't actually inappropriate, but it's actually quite an appropriate response for each and every one of us at some point. Let's just pray before we look at the scriptures. 
Lord, as we, uh, as we get into your word today, um, Holy Spirit, we pray you would open it up to us. Bring these words to life. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear your heartbeat. We want to encounter you. We want to encounter you, a God who understands pain and difficulty, yet chooses to walk through it with us anyway. Would you speak to us today? Amen. Amen. So a little bit of context as we're coming into this. If you remember Craig's sermon last week, it was quite a sad story in the chapter of David. We've seen David go from shepherd boy to, you know, one of the generals in Saul's army to being banished and sent away. And last week we had the incredibly sad chapter of Saul at the end of his life. Um, quite sad as he's, he's brought a whole army and he's at this big showdown with the Philistines, another warring nation near them. And he's gathered all the troops and Saul looked over and he saw they don't have enough manpower to make it through. And so Saul begins to panic and freak out. And so what he does is he goes and he consults a medium who's able to pull Samuel and talk to Samuel, even though Samuel has died. And Samuel's able to look at Saul and be like, Saul, buddy, you've missed it. By the end of tomorrow, you're going to be, you and your sons are going to be here where I am. And it ends up working exactly like that. The following day, Saul rallies the troops the troops charge and attack each other, and sadly, Israel is decimated, utterly decimated. Saul's son, Jonathan, who's David's best friend, who, oddly enough, throughout Samuel, Jonathan's probably the most um, upright, moral, God-fearing person throughout the encounter story, the entire story. In that battle, Jonathan is slain. And Saul is mortally wounded by an arrow, and so as Saul's trying to flee, he realizes he's not going to make it. And looking behind him at the oncoming army, Saul turns to his armor bearer and says, quickly, kill me, run, run your sword through me, because if I'm alive by the time they get here, I'm going to have to face a whole lot worse. But the armor bearer is too nervous, and in, in the heat of the battle, the armor bearer can't do it, so Saul ends up falling on his own sword, and then the armor bearer ends up falling on his own sword. Saul is overtaken, and he's lost his body is mutilated and hung up on the wall of a Philistine city. It's this horrible, horrible chapter in Israel's history. And David, oddly enough, actually was going to be at that battle. So you've been focusing on Saul, but since David and Saul parted ways at the last time they were at the cave and David uh, spared Saul, David actually went and ended up living in Philistine territory. He, became, he came under one of the Philistine kings and worked there in their region, and he did raiding parties. And he would go and he'd raid these other nations, these enemy nations around. And when the Philistines asked him what he's been doing, David would lie and say, oh, I was off raiding the Israelites of Judah and taking their plunder. So the Philistines thought he had completely defected from Israel and was now part of their team. So when the Philistines all went to go attack Israel, David and his company went with them. So at the battle, David was almost going to be there. And it's one of the greatest questions of scripture of what would have happened had David had to go to fight against his own countrymen. Fortunately, he didn't have to, as the main Philistine commander for the army uh, rightly felt a little bit worried about some Israelites standing in the back of their company as they're about to go fight their own countrymen. So David's sent back, vanished, and sent back home to where he came from. And so David would have been at this, the cusp of this battle, knowing something was about to go on, but not quite sure, knowing that Israel's on the back foot and not knowing what was going to happen. And so our story picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open them up to follow along. If not, we'll have the verses on the screen. 
So it says, after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag for two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Now, it's really interesting to look at how David responds. So this person who brings the message is actually an Amalekite. So he's not in Israel. He's from a foreign nation. And when David kind of presses him further, he says, wait, so, so what happened? Who are you? And this Amalekite says, well, I'm an Amalekite, and I happened to be at the battlefield, and you know, I saw Saul mortally wounded. And so Saul asked me, would you please kill me so that the Philistines don't? And so I graciously, I, I graciously did it for him. So I, I killed Saul, and then I took his crown, and I took his royal armband, and I've, I've brought them here to you, David. And now what's interesting is that this story is different from what happened at the end of 1 Samuel A. Now, David doesn't quite know it yet, but we're all pretty sure that this Amalekite is actually lying. Um, he's more, most likely to be a grave scra scavenger who came around once all the battle was done and snuck in and tried to remove some of Saul's royal armaments after he'd passed away. And so this Amalekite thought he had a real opportunity on his hands, so he beelined it to the one person who he thought might really, really like the Israelite crown, David. And so he goes and he tells this story about himself being magnanimous and gracious to King Saul, and he brings the crown and the royal armband and says, David, look, and you can almost hear it on this man's words. He's like, here you go, now you can become king. And this guy's like, I cannot wait to get the reward, because he thought David was just going to run back into Israel, take over the kingship, rule it for himself like all the other nations would have done. But instead, David doesn't respond with joy saying, yes, awesome, Saul's dead, I got the crown, let's move forward and take over the country. Instead, he takes a very different tack, as a very different response. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and they tore them. They mourned and they wept, and they fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Such a fascinating response, eh? When this Amalekite was ready for David to almost jump for joy because his enemy was dead, and now the way for David to become king was there, but instead David grieves. He weeps. He laments. He mourns. And that evening, once they'd been weeping and fasting, David goes back to the Amalekite, asks him one more time what happened. So the Amalekite says, yeah, I killed Saul, brought these royal armaments to you, and hint, hint, I'd love like a one-up once you're the king of Israel now. And David looks at him and he says, mate, you've condemned yourself. Don't you know? In Israel, you don't strike down the Lord's anointed. The same words David had been repeating all through 1 Samuel again and again, I will not strike down the Lord's anointed. I will not kill the one whom God has sent. You yourself have just admitted that's what you did. On top of that, this character was lying and trying to get a one-up. And so David then, executing justice, puts this man to death saying, by your own testimony, you're condemned. You killed our king. 
And so this man is executed. And so David then, with this man put to ground, what does he do? Does he charge into the country to take over his kingdom? No, instead, he writes this lament. And in the context of, the fir- of this first chapter of 2 Samuel, it's huge. It dominates half the chapter. And when you look at scripture, when they devote heaps of time to something, it's really important because it took a lot of time and effort to write things down. So when there's heaps of space given to one thing, we got to stop and take notice of it. And I want to read you David's lament because I think it's beautiful and powerful and has a lot to say to us today. David writes, A gazelle lies slain on your heights, O Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it, tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of our uncircumcised enemies rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you neither have dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields, because for there the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul will no longer be rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain and from the flesh of the mighty, Jonathan's bow never turned back. And and Saul's sword never returned unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, they were to be loved and to be admired. And in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. Who clothed you in scarlet and finery. Who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very, very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than I have ever known. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. It's quite moving, isn't it? David's song of mourning, David's song of lament. Because what's so fascinating about this is David isn't just mourning for Saul and for Jonathan. Saul represented so much more than just one man. Saul represented the transition of a nation. From before, when they were scattered tribes who were living in subsistence daily living, Saul represented the movement from scattered tribes to a united nation with a monarchy. He embodied the hopes and the future of Israel moving into a new time where God would bless them in new and powerful ways. And over Saul's rule, they expanded and they gained new land, land that they had lost to their enemies. They'd felt like God's plan was coming true and then all of a sudden God's plan died. A horrible mutilated death. And the nation was shell-shocked. And what's so key and what I want us to look at is David's response rather than moving in, because David, more than anyone else, would have actually had cause to rejoice at Saul's death, because now God's promises lay open and he could go run to be king, but that's not what he does. Instead, he mourns and he grieves. And this mourning and grieving shaped him, shaped his people, and shaped the nation for the better. And so we're going to look at a few key things about what David did that I think can help us understand how to process grief 
difficulty, and loss. The first thing is that David took the time. Uh, I knew a man at a church I was at before. Um, lovely, lovely Christian guy. Lovely. Uh, just the best. Uh, he was a builder. Loved God. He had a beautiful wife and a couple beautiful daughters. And they were just, they were doing awesome. They were really happy with what God is doing in their life. Until one day everything fell, fell apart. Um, his wife had a massive stroke. Um, and it damaged significant portions of her brain. She had to go into full-time care. Um, she can't communicate or speak. Her movement is severely limited, impaired. She needs people to help feed her and clean her and take care of her. And this happened, I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't quite old. She's in the prime. She would have been early 40s. She has this massive stroke with a couple teenage daughters. And so this man, my friend, is left reeling. What does he do? How do, you, how, do you, how do you connect God's promises of good and he has a plan and a future and a hope for us and I've just, I've just lost my partner and now I've got to make sure that she's taken care of and I've got to go visit her and I want to be with her daily to help her recover as best as she can, but she may never recover to the strength that she was before. And, and I've also got to go and I've got to be strong for my daughters because my daughters have just lost the mother that they've known and they're now having to deal with a new reality how do I work with this? This doesn't fit into the nice, tidy Christian bubble that we like to present so often. So what he did, and I found it so profound, is regularly once a month, he would build in time. Whether it was, a, if he could get a full day, he would build in a full day, or whether it was just a morning or just an afternoon. But once a month, he would build in time where his girls were taken care of and his wife was taken care of, and he would go away by himself, and he would give himself time to grieve time to weep, time to shout and be angry and furious at God, asking, God, how could you let this happen? We've loved you. We've followed you. We've been faithful to you. Why would you do this to us? It was a chance for him to work through all these emotions and pain and loss. And when we asked him why, he said, look, I've got to be strong for my daughters and I've got to be strong for my wife, but I also need to be real. And I need to be able to let out everything that's happening within me and I need to take the time to do that. Truth is, lots of us love to just brush by things because pain's uncomfortable. It's awful when, when you lose someone or when you lose a job and you hit a really tough place in life and there's a breakdown in relationship and family. It's awful, and so we don't like to dwell on it. It's only human nature that we want to move on. The danger is when we start coaching it with Christian language to add a, a spiritual reason as to why we can move on. We coach it with language like, oh, no, yeah, yeah, I'm going through a divorce, but God is good. God is good. It's fine. You know, you know God has a plan. No, it's okay. Yeah, no, we lost that person, but you know, God works all things together for his good, and it sounds real good, eh? It sounds real spiritual, but what's spiritual is actually just denial. It's avoiding the reality that has now come upon us. And as we grieve and we take the time to grieve, one of the key elements is we're allowing ourselves space and time to recognize life as it now is. One of the greatest elements of loss is that your reality is shifted. My friend's life, his reality was dramatically shifted from having a partner who could help him work and take care of the kids. He was now a solo father looking after now a wife and kids all on his own. And in grief and taking the time, you need to allow yourself space to recognize that. Equally in grieving, it's giving space and time to say that we're not in control. 
using language like, no, God is good. He's going to have it sorted. No, it's okay. You know, in a few weeks, we'll be fine. What that all is, is it's us trying to exert what little control we have because it makes us feel better. If we can just chuck on these little statements, if we can add this nice language, if we can package ourselves just right, we're exerting control over the one thing in the world that we still have control over. But grief allows us to say that we are not in control. We are not in control of our own lives, as any of us who faced loss will realize. We don't have control over when someone might live or might die. We don't have control over when some of us might come down with a sudden sickness. We don't have control when relationships break down because there's so many factors and it's awful, but there's this recognition that when we take the time to grieve, we say we are not in control, but we can hopefully come to a point where we can trust that someone else might be. And in the meantime, we just got to let ourselves acclimatize to this new reality. And so for David, this time was so, so crucial. By taking the time to grieve, he allowed himself to recognize and come into this new reality. I mean, can you imagine how it would have looked to the rest of the nation? How it would have looked to all of Israel, all the northern tribes, if when their king and leader and Jonathan, their beloved friend, and all their family members had just died away in this massive battle, how it would have looked if David would have just gleefully been like jumping over Jonathan's grave to take over the kingdom of Israel? Can you imagine how difficult and heart-wrenching that would have been for the rest of the nation? But by David taking the time, it was a recognition that still the kingdom would only come by God's hands, not by him forcing it, not by him taking it on his own. And it's a recognition that God will do what God will do, and he's still not in control. He's there, but by the grace of God. David took the time which gave time for his people and his nation to also work through the great loss that they had faced. The second thing David did is he put words and he gave words to the loss that they were experiencing. I recently watched a couple of films that were oddly eerily similar. One was made by like a Christian, a Christian production agency and one was just a normal Hollywood film and they both dealt with the same subject which was um, the breakdown of a marriage relationship within a family. And so the Christian one, um, and they looked at it from such different angles, such dramatically different angles that I thought it was really telling. The Christian one, the, uh, the couple, you know, they got into some fights early on, um, but it was pretty kind of kosher and tame. The husband worked too much and uh, the wife felt like she wasn't able to engage with her husband and felt like she was being abandoned and left on their own. And so the movie kind of followed this and carried it through. And, you know, they had some awkward dinner fights and where someone said a few difficult words and maybe raised their voice a little and then left the room. And, um, but all in all, like the marriage breakdown was pretty, it wasn't like, it was pretty easy to watch. It was pretty easy watching for like a Friday evening. Um, but what then, you know, what then happened is then the, the husband became a Christian. And then when he became a Christian, he began to try and reach out to his wife. And at first she kind of pushed him back and said, no, no, not interested. Um, but then over time, he was kind of able to reconcile with her. And so the movie ended with them being married again which is cool. But I remember leaving the film being like, I mean, that was nice. Like that was nice and all, but gosh, that doesn't seem to reflect the reality of divorces I've encountered. That doesn't seem to reflect the, the brutal nature that happens when you get this wrenching of two people apart. All their fights were so tame. They were so nice to each other. You know, like it just didn't seem to connect with reality. And this other film that covered the same topic came at it so differently. 
This film, if I'm honest, was really difficult to watch because as their relationship and their, their partnership broke down, their fights were raw and heartbreaking. The names they called each other made me shrink inside and I felt I squirmed in my seat. It dealt with themes of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. It dealt with the, the ongoing effects as the kids now became disenfranchised with a father who they thought was kind, but they found out was uh, hateful and angry, but also himself broken. And so their hero was actually this broken person and the kids are now having to work with it. And so the end of the film, the parents never really got back together. The parents never really reconciled. They managed to become uh, not mean enough to each other that they could work and hopefully raise their kids together. But it left the film on this really uneasy thing. And I remember at the end of the film feeling so uncomfortable, like I just went through uh, an hour and a half of pain and torture. But the thing I remember leaving with was, after watching the other film, I thought, man, that seems more like reality. And why is it that the Christian one often has such a difficult time saying it how it is? And it happens so much in our Christian walk, we will self-censor because we don't want things to get uncomfortable. We don't want them to get too raw or to get too real because that makes us, you know, nervous. And so we say nice things like, oh, I went through a storm and a trial, but, you know, God is faithful. Well, I mean, that's nice, but that doesn't deal with the reality and the depths and the rawness that divorce or loss brings us to. And it happens with the way we encounter scripture as well. We, uh, when we come into churches, we'll often hear psalms like, lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. Praise the Lord with harp and lyre. Praise him in the sanctuary. Praise him, all you peoples. Praise him in the nations, for he is good and his love endures forever. And that's great. Those are great psalms, and I love to read them, and I love to sing them. But the difficulty is, those are most of the psalms we hear in church but they only make up about a third of the psalm book. The other two-thirds of psalms are filled with ones like this. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. The Psalms talk about the depth of sorrow and despair, not just encountering with God, but that we encounter with relationships with one another. This one writes saying, you know, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. Psalms is filled with these songs of grieving, of loss, of anger and resentment at God, anger and resentment at friends who've betrayed us, anger and resentment at situations and enemies who rejoice to see us low and to see us broken. But we don't often say those words. We don't often sing those psalms because I think it makes us uncomfortable. And we like to package things nicely, and grief sometimes feels inappropriate. 
But these are part of our rich tradition in scriptural history. If anything, it's sad that the world is able to be more real, honest, and raw because all of us should be able to say that we are only here by the grace of God and I am a complete and utter mess without Jesus. But the problem is we often feel like if we begin to voice doubt, like I remember growing up in church, if I was like, I think God's a jerk. You know, if you said that during Sunday school, it'd get a little awkward, right? If someone's like, What's, what have you learned about Jesus this week? And someone was like, I think he's cruel. It'd be an awkward Sunday school class to take, eh? But the truth is, we think it. I've thought it. I mean, maybe it's just me. I've, I've thought God's far. God doesn't care. Why would God let this happen? But we hide it and we censor it because we don't want to seem, you know, like a bad Christian or doubtful, and we don't want to get kicked out of the community, or we assume that no one else will ever understand, so we'll just pretend like it's not happening. But the truth is, voicing doubt in God, voicing anger at him, voicing frustration and sadness and sorrow and lament at the situations life has brought us in, isn't an act of doubt, but it is in itself an act of faith. Because by coming to God with those things, by coming to God with the, the worst of the worst of who we are and what we're facing, by coming to him, we're still saying that actually this still comes under your domain. You're still responsible for this. You still have a responsibility to help me deal with this. By bringing it to God, we are saying it's still under God's jurisdiction. But instead, as long as we hide it and try to say, oh, God doesn't need to deal with that, or uh, God probably won't understand that I'm doubting in him right now, or God probably won't understand that I think he's a cruel jerk for taking that person away from me, so I'm just going to bottle it up inside and put a big smile on our face. The longer we do that, the more we're actually saying, actually, God has no role in that part of my life. So the more real, the more honest, the more verbal we can be in giving words to the lament and the grief that we face, the more it's an acclamation of faith in who God is and his ability to carry us through it. Grief is a foundational aspect of the Christian walk. I will face it. You will face it. The question is, how will we interact with it? So finally, the thing that David did, and this was so key, is that with his grief and with this lament, he was able to lead the people. That lament that I read out, he made sure that all of Judah learned it and was able to sing it. And what's so key about this is it gave an opportunity for all the people in his army to also voice the loss that they would have felt in their countrymen, in their brothers and sisters dying in that battle. And by teaching this song to Judah and letting Judah, this nation, this tribe that David was a part of, learn to sing it, it allowed Judah to grieve the loss that they had felt. And as Judah was allowed to grieve the loss that Israel felt, it was able to communicate to the rest of the tribes of Israel, something is horribly wrong and something needs to be done about it. And it would have allowed the rest of the nation to also join in and grieve and process through the loss that Saul and Jonathan and the army's death would have meant. And what's so fascinating is you follow David's story. The next few chapters are all about David slowly coming into kingship over the whole country. It starts with him becoming king of Judah, which is his local tribe in the south. And progressively, he uh, goes through a small civil war as Saul's last son up in the north is still trying to retain power. And there's a small civil war in the next couple of years. And that civil war means there's death 
after death after death, and there's brother killing brother, and there's more and more grief piling up. And so one of the most important aspects in David's leadership over the next few chapters is his ability to lead the nation through grief and mourning and loss. It shows up later on, Saul's key general, Abner, was assassinated cruelly by David's chief general, Joab. And it's a sad chapter in David's history because his chief man was responsible for killing a really good godly man by stabbing, in the, stabbing him in the back. And what does David do? So David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bier, and they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. And all the people wept also. See, David, by being able to grieve, by putting words to it and taking the time to lament and to mourn the loss and the horrible situation they found themselves in, allowed the nation to do the same. It gave permission for everyone else to say, yeah, this is awful. This isn't how it should be, and something's got to be done about it. And I think had David not been able to lament and to mourn and to grieve, the civil war would have lasted significantly longer with the rest of the nation constantly pushing back against him because they all would have been harboring still the emotions and the pain that they were feeling and feeling like David was actually causing it. But instead, by lamenting and grieving and leading the people, he was saying to them, guys, together we are one nation, one people. And what we faced is awful. So let's mourn and let's weep and let's pray for a better day that God might Bring. See, for us, we love to hide our grief and we love to keep it private because we think no one will understand. But the truth is, if we are able to be open and honest and real, that grief will also give permission to others that you know to walk through theirs. I think one of the most key things when I've been sharing my faith with people, the one of the most key things that's been able to move the faith forward is not being me being able to explain the richness of the Christian faith. It's been me being able to say, yep, this horrible thing has happened. This horrible thing has happened, and I don't know why God let it happen. And right now, I'm just trying to work that through. More often than that, more often than not, that small statement was the thing that was able to take people and think, huh, so there's something real about this. Like Sam said, it's not just all rainbows and clouds and sunshine, but this is a God who can deal with the real me, not the pretend me that I like to come on Sunday to. And if we are able to be honest about that, we can help lead others as well. So what happened? David eventually was made king of Judah. The small lower tribe in the south made him king, and it began his two-year journey of having to work with and negotiate with and talk with the rest of the tribes all around the country in order for him to become king of the whole nation. But like I said, that two-year journey, if you look at it in 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 4, that whole journey is marked with assassinations, sorrow, war, bitterness, and the common trend you'll find throughout again and again is David mourning, weeping, and lamenting. And this lament became a key feature in David's kingship and it marked his difference from how the other kings would have done it. So what about you and me? The truth is God can handle it. 
when we hide and we try to pretend and we try to put on our perfect Christian face, that's not for God. Because God was there when we went through our divorce. God was there when we lost our child, our mother, our brother, our sister. God was there when we lost our job or our house. He was there when we came down with a terminal illness or someone we loved came down with an illness. He was there. He knows. He understands. As long as we try to be perfect, that's for us. It's us trying to hold on to control and it's us trying to present a perfect image out to others. So we know that God can handle it. The question is, can we? If I can invite uh, the band out. Again, what I'm saying here is we're not trying to just dig up things and say, oh, we should always be sad. What I'm trying to say is that within the scope of the Christian life, there is both joy and sorrow, and we need to make space for both. And so today, often in churches, you come in and you hear themes of let's be joyful, let's be thankful for what God has done, let's praise him. Turn to the person next to you and say, what good thing has happened this week? And that's awesome. For many of you, that's where you're at. You're like, God is sweet, and that's cool. But I also want to make space for us within our Christian gathering to say, there is space for you to be upset, for you to be angry, for you to be broken, and for you to be hurting and that doesn't make you less of a Christian. That doesn't make you a bad Christian. That just makes you a real person who's encountering Jesus. And so I'm going to close uh, right now by reading a prayer. It's a prayer of, of lament. And so for those of you who are feeling great, you may think, oh, I don't know if this has anything to do for me. That's awesome. You're feeling great. Praise God for that. Good on you. But as we read this prayer, if this doesn't apply to you personally, I'm sure almost each and every one of us knows someone who's going through grieving, through mourning, and through loss. As I pray this, would you pray this for that person that you know? And if you're here today and you've come in and you've, you've put on your mask and you've put on your good smiling face because you're ready to be a good Christian for all of us around here and you've got the right words to say when people ask you how you're doing, you're ready for your prescribed response and you've got it all laid out in your head, but truthfully, honestly, deep down, you're broken you're angry, you're doubting if God's even there or even if this Christianity thing is even worth doing, you wonder why you've done it for so, far, so much and honestly you're thinking, oh, I might just give it up one of these days. Or maybe you've come in and you're right in the midst of grief or loss and your reality is rapidly shifting and you have no control over it and that is awful. As I pray this, let this be your prayer, let it echo within you and know that God can handle you even when you're ugly and angry and spiteful because that is the God that he is. He doesn't want perfect you. He doesn't want uh, happy you. He just wants you wherever you're at. Let's pray together. Why, God? Why? When our need is desperate and when all other help is in vain, why do you turn away from us? Why? Why when the darkness is deepest and our midnight is starless, do you hide from us? Why? 
Why in times of grief and distress, when there's no light in the window, do we find a door slammed in our face and the sound of bolting and double bolting coming from within? Why forsake us when we need you the most? Why are you present when the skies are clear? You're our help in days of prosperity, but you're, you're also absent in our time of trouble. See, see, we know faith doesn't exempt us from sorrow, or we know it doesn't shield us from evil, and we know that. And we know, too, that this, the, this whole earth is wet with blood of the innocent. But why this? Why now? Why? Know this, God, know this. See, if faith were dependent upon feelings, and if our trust in you were no more than a matter of the mind, we would be done with you. Done with you now. Done with you forever. And hear this, God, hear this. If it were not for that man, who was a friend of the poor and the damned, for that man who healed the sick and gave sight to the blind. If it were not for that man whom we cursed and crucified, and who is crucified still. For that man who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and who carries them still. God, God eternal, God of Jesus, God who said yes to his life, his love, his suffering, his death. God of the cross, crucified God, sharing our pain and bearing our sin. See, if it were not, oh God, for you, for you, our lover, you, our judge, you, our hope, you are friend, we would all indeed be lost. So God of Christ, who raised him from the dead, God with whom life can begin again, come to us now. Hold us, help us, heal us, for you and you alone are our salvation. Amen. <laughs>